Hey, Katie. Hey, Jesse. How's it going? I'm okay. Do you ever hate yourself when you're like writing or revising something? Constantly. That is the only emotion I experience when I'm when I'm working. Yeah. I thought you were just going to say that's the only emotion I experience, which would have been a whole other thing. <laughs> it's true, actually. Depends on the day, but I'd say three weeks out of the out of the month. I'm I'm finishing up a book and I'm sort of entering the stage where it's just like rereading what you've written over and over and over, making small edits, trying to figure out what to change, what to keep. And like, it just makes me hate myself. Like, don't get me wrong. I, I think it'll be a good book and I'm very lucky to have a great editor, but um, being forced to read your own writing over and over is torture. It's horrible. Dude, it's a little bit like being forced to listen to your voice over and over, like when you're editing a podcast, just absolute torture. Yeah. I, um, it's so weird to me that I have any friends, just given how I sound. It's weird to me too. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. What, uh, can you remind me the name of the podcast? Blocked, blocked something, blocked party. Nope. 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 Blocked, blocked and reported. That's it. I am Jesse single. And I'm Katie Herzog. And I uh, met someone on the beach today, a, a woman who um, was what I would call maybe a normie. This woman was maybe in her 60s and she had her dogs out and I had my dog out. So the dogs were playing and we were sort of making small talk. And she asked me what I do for a living. And I said, you know, I'm, a, I'm basically an unemployed writer. I lost my job um, in the pandemic, but I, I've got a, a podcast now. And she asked me the name of it. And when I told her, it was just this look of like utter confusion on her face, which <laughs> makes me realize that. The name only works if you're hyper online. I like. I think my parents are probably. They haven't said anything about it. I think they probably listened to the podcast, but they're probably like, "What the fuck does this mean?" Yeah. I don't think we need to explain it though. If you get it, you get it. Yeah, maybe it wasn't a good marketing decision, but uh, we're too far down that road now. So, Katie, I have a question for you, and there's only two answers: Are riots a good, b bad? You have to decide, and if you make the wrong choice, you're a bad person. Three, two, one. Oh God. Bad. Ooh. Bad. Oh man. Got her canceled. <laughs> Did you hear that? Did you hear that? I tried to say it so quietly that nobody could hear it. We are going to discuss riot discourse today. I guess before we get into it, let's do the the normal housekeeping. Uh you can reach out to us to yell at us at blocked and reported podcast at gmail.com. We are on Patreon at patreon.com slash blocked and reported, and we're on Twitter at the bar pod. This is sort of a bonus episode because we already released our episode this week. So we're going to do more or less a full-length free episode. And then we're going to continue the conversation going uh, for our Patreon. So definitely check that out and consider giving us your hard-earned money. Yeah. Who could deserve it more than us? Hard to come up with any names. But Riot Discourse has been a very interesting thing to watch unfold on Twitter, hasn't it? It really has. It, you know, if you had told me a week ago that the pandemic would not be the biggest clusterfuck of 2020, I would have been very shocked. I would have thought like Trump came out as a woman or something like that. Like what could possibly <laughs> be crazier than a fucking global pandemic? Well, turns out race riots. Do you know that? Do you know the monkey paw meme? No, I don't. It's like it's like this. Um trope from sort of scary movies where some cursed object fulfills your wish but there's a dark twist so it's like if a week ago one of us was like i wish just for a break from all this coronavirus news and then the monkey we got it. Just, yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> uh so i mean i we should probably be clear just for accuracy and transparency it does seem like the ratio of nonviolent protesting all over the country is pretty high compared to the ratio of rioting but in many ways 
it seems to be in almost everyone's interest online to focus on the rioting, right? Yeah, and I, I think at this point, forty state or forty cities have instituted um, some sort of curfew. Um, so there is definitely repercussions, regardless of whether or not the majority of protesters are being peaceful. Um, shit is happening in in Seattle over the weekend. I think sixty businesses downtown um, were, you know browsed and looted um and in the midst of a pandemic so shit is crazy did you say razzed yeah is that what is that it's it's raised razzing is like making fun of someone like i'm razzing you well that that too that too (laughs) they were they were lightheartedly ripping the uh and then they burned them down (laughs) yes (laughs) they canceled them and then they burned and looted them hilarious times uh What was interesting as we were discussing offline was it seemed like almost overnight, maybe two or three days ago, we're recording this on Monday, the sort of intelligentsia on Twitter were very strictly enforcing the rule or the the norm that you shouldn't say anything bad about the rioting. You shouldn't suggest it could have negative consequences. This was just sort of common sense because obviously everyone who's rioting is doing it for a good reason. Obviously, it will lead to good things in the future. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but only a little bit. But then basically overnight, this just flipped, right? Yeah. Now it's the the Russians, the white supremacists, and a small number of white men in skinny jeans known as Antifa. The most annoying of all, white men yeah. in skinny jeans known as Antifa. What, yeah. what, what do you think accounted for this? Because it was like a lot of – we're not the only people to point this out. Like uh, Wesley Gang had a really good tweet about it for one, but it was like whiplash-inducing. Uh, I think probably just the scope of the destruction spread. It spread to more cities. I mean, Antifa has a presence in Seattle, and so anytime there's a there's any sort of protest, um, you'll see you'll see this group of people. This is a, a more true in Portland than here, but there's also a presence here. But this is typically the you know the damage done is sort of minor, um, but what we're seeing now is not minor. So I think probably the scope of it, it just becomes harder to say this is a you know um, sort of a, a minor problem, all in the name of the greater good. When you have, for instance, you know minority-owned businesses being burned down and looted, it was weird to me. A lot of my arguments about sort of media come down to class divides. And to me, there was this ugly thing, as there has been in the past, where people whose neighbor, whose personal neighborhoods where they live are not going to get torched or burned down, who will not lose access to their Target or their bodega, being a little bit glib about that happening in other places. And that that doesn't mean either that there's no moral complexity here or B, that I want to like crack down on random rioters taking flat screen TVs, which frankly, I do not view as a priority. But the the whole way like identity works is interesting because in some contexts, you can't say X or Y because you lack the right identity characteristic. But then you saw white people being like, cool, cool. They're torching, you know, inner city neighborhoods. And I, I that that disturbed me because I don't think people know what like even even something like a Target where, yes, it's a big company. Yes, they probably have insurance like that's you know that could be 50 or 100 people's jobs and it actually has repercussions for people who aren't sitting on their asses on twitter from the comfort of their own right 
I mean, people use these businesses, you know, not everybody gets grocery delivery. I have seen a lot of this on on Twitter, you know, people sort of making fun of people for um, defending a target or whatever. Well, maybe the target is the one place to get grocery store to get groceries in this neighborhood. You know, I mean, once these businesses go out of business, it might be different for a giant corporation like Target. But, you know, we've seen this before. Once these businesses are are burned down, are looted, if, once they go out of business for any reason in poor neighborhoods, they don't always come back. It can take decades for these for these places to rebound after an event like this. It was also weird watching some white commentators trying to sort of the main flaw in my mind with like with identitarianism is it lumps people all together. So so they just sort of spun these narratives where it's like, well, yeah, if there's video of like of people looting AutoZone, it's because they're so pissed off about police violence and injustice. And it's like a, the vast, vast majority of people of any color aren't looting AutoZone. They're coming up with other ways to express their outrage. B, it's just sort of like condescending that to say like, yeah, that's what's going on. They're not just sort of normal human beings doing the fucked up shit normal human beings do when when order disorder descends. They're they're freedom fighters by looting or burning down the AutoZone. It's just it it's just again this disconnect between how people really are and the performances we put on on social media about sort of other groups particularly like lower power groups yeah absolutely the seattle mayor yesterday um put out a tweet basically blaming the entirety of the riots on white men and you know i watched the video um from downtown seattle and there's certainly it's seattle there's certainly a lot of white people but in terms of who is doing the looting I'd say it was a pretty diverse crowd, um, but this becomes, you know, a convenient narrative for everybody. If you, you know, if you blame the, if you blame the white guy, then it sort of excuses the behavior of everybody else. And you can do that in a way without appearing to be racist yourself. Right. Nothing more wonderfully captures our beautiful tapestry than the fact that all humans like to riot sometimes. Yeah. Come on. That's just, it's who we are as a species. I don't like crowds or I'd be down there myself. You need to come up with some form of rioting that just where you can sort of riot by yourself. A quiet riot. I'll do what uh, what all of the other white people in my Instagram feed are doing is just post many, many memes. I think that's the – there seems to be a contest among the, the Karens and the Beckys and the, the Sharons in my Instagram feed. The more memes, the more anti-racist you are. Do the do the memes give you instructions about how to do better? Yes, they do. They're very instructive. A lot of it includes reading Robin D'Angelo. Um, I'm tempted to respond to those memes and uh, send send these people uh, Kalafasani's review of Robin D'Angelo's book, but I have so far restrained myself. Yeah, I actually have like a whole rant about D'Angelo. Let's save that for the patrons only part, just because I want to like build up to it. But the I mean, I guess people just want to help somehow, but yeah. there's so much of it that feels so narcissistic and solipsistic. Like it's performative. It's so performative. Like, do we need more? It, what the difference between America now and where we want it to be? What difference would it make if another ten thousand white people from the suburbs get into circles and talk about their privilege? Like, we've been through multiple generations of these sorts of trainings, and what do they do? Well, you know, I mean, there's evidence on this. You know, there there are implicit bias trainings in, for instance, police departments, and they haven't been shown to do much to, you know, to reduce racist policing. There are things that you can do to, re- to you know, reduce the number of, of brown people who are stopped and harassed by cops, but implicit bias training does not appear to be one of them. 
I think I think Joyce being online is like fundamentally unhealthy at a time like this. I know people feel like they need to be tuned into every twist and turn, but I I actually don't think you do. And for a long time, I've watched like people, including some people I know. It it really seems like honestly, Twitter worsens their mental health. And that's a really tough thing to prove scientifically because like maybe people who already struggle are drawn to Twitter, but watching people just mainline all this misery and destruction and also whatever weird conspiracy theory pops into their heads about white supremacists or Antifa or whoever else, they just, they can always find evidence to like prove it. Cause like whatever you want to prove, someone will get you that evidence or you can find it. And I just, I think this is all having a really unhealthy effect on people. And one manifestation of that is just this sort of um, compulsive sharing of like of memes and, and awareness. And it's all, it doesn't accomplish anything. You know, and it also, it, it perpetuates a single narrative, you know, and I want to, I want to bring up some optimistic points here. So I was reading a piece by Coleman Hughes, who's a, a young black scholar um, called the case for black optimism. And and Coleman brings up some really good points, and, and I want to I want to bring these up as well. And I, I do this sort of knowing the risk because the risk is that when you tell people that things aren't as bad as they think, you can seem tone deaf, you can seem racist. Um, obviously, I'm a white person. I don't know what it's like to you know to live in a black body um, and to experience the particular hardships that black people face. Um, but we do have some some reasons to be optimistic. And so I want to bring these up um, because I think people need to like feel good about something right now. And and I and I say this now because this is one of the things that I sort of want to say to my my fellow white people, my friends when they're when they're sharing these memes. Um, I don't do it because mostly I don't want to engage in conversation with them. But I'm just gonna like tell you some statistics. Um, okay, so since 2005, the number of unarmed Black people killed in the United States has gone down remarkably. So in 2005, and this is, I think Ferguson was in 2014, right? Yeah, that sounds right. Okay, so after Ferguson, the year after that, there were over 100 unarmed Black people killed um, killed in the U.S., Last year in 2009, that number was nine, and it's gone steadily down. So this was not this was not a you know a, a blip in the statistics. It's it's been going steadily down for for years. Okay, so that's a good thing, right? So last year there were nine black people killed, unarmed black people killed by police, which is actually less than the number of unarmed white people killed by police. Um, I think that number was like 19, and obviously like there's some disproportionate effects there via you know population. But regardless, like both of those numbers are like pretty low for a country with 300 million people and just as many guns as there are people. So from 2001 to 2017, the incarceration rate for black men declined by 34 by 34 percent. And that's it's like that's overall, but it's even higher for young black men. So uh, during that same time period for black men, 25 to 29, it decreased by 56 percent. 24 or 20 to 24 by 60 percent and 18 to 19 it declined by 72 percent and it's like a similar story for young black women between 2001 and 2017 the birth rate for for black teenagers declined by 63 percent death rate among the black population is down life expectancy is up um, education is way up between the years 1999 and 2017. The number of black students who earn bachelor's degrees increased by 82%. Um, 60% of blacks at every level of education say they're doing better financially than their parents. So this is all good news. When you compare those numbers 
to white outcomes, they're way lower. And that's a problem, right? But the thing is, white outcomes are also, there's been, a, there's been some blips in this, like um, life expectancy for whites has gone down. But for the most part, white people are also doing better. And they're not doing disproportionately better. They're also doing better from a base of like 20 years ago. And so when you compare black populations now to black populations 20 years ago, there's really remarkable positive effects, right? Like things are actually much better when you compare them to white populations, less so. But it's a little bit like comparing apples and oranges because whites are starting out at a different level. And, and I just want to point out really quickly, but um, not to interrupt, but like I'm looking at a similar sort of similar article on 538 by I'm going to butcher his name because I'm terrible name, but Samuel Sinangwe, who's like a really well-respected, Coleman is viewed as like, he's he's like centrist. Yeah, he's viewed as like far-right. Well, he's not far-right. But this article I'm looking at on 538 says police are killing fewer people in big cities, but more people in suburban and rural America, which is complicated, but points in the same direction that like by certain measures, there's been some improvement. I think that this is important to note because I think people are unaware of this. Completely. And I don't think that, that you and I having this conversation on this podcast is going to change that at all. I don't think that, you know, um, John McWhorter and Glenn Lowry having the, like, this conversation on their podcast, even though they're, they're Black, is going to like put this message out at all. The message that we get from the media is a totally different story, which is that Black people are doing worse than they have been doing, um, that there's this this you know, white supremacy is in the air. It affects everything that people do. And that might be true. It totally might be true. You know, and and I should also note, like, black people might not be killed at vastly higher propor- proportions than white people, but they are stopped, stopped at higher proportions. The use of force is way higher among black populations. We talked about this last week, but black yeah. people are routinely harassed um, by cops in a way that white people aren't. But there's lots of good news here. And so this... These protests, these riots happening right now, I think lack a little bit of historical perspective because of the video, because the video is so damning. And when you see videos yeah. like this, it, it's, it's confirmation bias, right? If you believe that the world is, is inherently or that the United States is inherently and inextricably racist, that this is a, a nation built on white supremacy and maintained with white supremacy, and you see this video... Of course, you're going to, you know, this is going to confirm that, confirm that, that idea already. Of course, you're going to want to write. People are justifiably angry. But the video shows a pretty rare event, a terrible event for sure, but a rare one. People have trouble with that in any circumstance. It's just, it's absolutely, absolutely human nature. And the, the comparison I use for a much bigger event that like obviously killed way more people is like, 9-11 was one horrible terrorist attack and it, it just rerouted the entire country. And suddenly we we literally thought this like small schmucky band of terrorists across the world were an existential threat to the most powerful nation in history. That's like, right. that's how our brains get hijacked. And like, this is right. a little bit different, of course, because we're talking about bad policing and what is supposed to be the best and freest country in the world. And like you said, millions of people have horrible interactions with the cops every day, but it's just um, I, some of the tweets I saw from experts, like, uh, I mean, I'll just name a couple. Like Nicole Hannah-Jones said that that young whites have sort of racial attitudes just as problematic as their parents, suggesting like no progress. And that's like I don't see it's any not true. Evidence. It's not true. And then you know Kevin Cruz, who's a really good and well-respected historian, is basically he does this tweet storm with some interesting parallels to like the Chicago riots of 1968. I think 11 people died there alone. And then he says that in the 50 years since then, 
he, he phrases it in a slightly fuzzy way, but any, any sort of um, non-expert person would read his tweets and make it, it makes it sound like policing has gotten worse since 1968, which it has not by any means. No, absolutely not. I mean, I think that we have a, there's sort of a risk of us pointing this out. You know, I've been, I've been nervous about this conversation because I don't want us to be perceived as sort of diminishing um, the pain that, that black communities are feeling for sure. But on the other hand, like, we have all of this data and this data shows us that things are getting better. You know, I mean, Steven Pinker, he wrote an entire book sort of making this argument that that humanity is actually doing better and people just sort of dismissed him or, you know, said that it was his white privilege that allowed him to say this. Um, but like if we look at the data, things are going not great, but they're at least better. It's just I'm confused about why. I'm not confused. I know why I know why the protests are happening right now, but I'm deeply concerned. I'm especially concerned that this is going to be a fucking gift to Donald Trump, you know, and a lot of people in, in my social media feeds are saying like, this is it, you know, he's out, he's out boys and girls. Like we did it. He's out. You know, these protests are what fucking planet are you on? If you think like historically, that's the most likely reaction to something right. like this. It's just I mean, the most, the closest parallel we have is 1968 Nixon won in a fucking landslide and Trump has absolutely fucked up the response to this. I will say, I don't think Joe Biden has really proved himself to be a brilliant leader at this moment. He seems to be mostly like in his basement and, or I guess Trump's in his basement too. I don't know where Biden is on his porch somewhere. And then he leaves to go, like go shake hands with black people every once in a while, um, while probably saying something condescending about how they're they're only black if they if they vote for him. Um, so it's this utter failure of leadership, and I'm not sure that that's going to hurt Donald Trump because Democrats don't need to win the cities. They've already won the cities. They need to win these moderate districts and. I think when people are watching the news, especially white people are sitting home watching the news and they see these cities being burned and looted, despite the clear overreaction from the police in some places, they're going to blame Democrats. Well, but it's that same thing of like seeing what you want to see where like totally. even like you said, like a lot of the rioting is completely a uh, a multicultural affair, but um, conservative media is so good at just fucking generating these images of of black people rioting and it doesn't matter what the ethnic divide is because there's this like well-oiled machine that will make it seem like black people are like the problem and i mean at the same time you know uh, left-wing media will do the same thing and blame russians you know or blame white supremacists you know both sides are pushing a narrative that is demonstrably false if you watch you know more than a couple of videos I think what frustrates me is like in a parallel universe where media hadn't gone insane there would be a really good space for experts in this area, historians, sociologists, anyone else to to do that kind of piece where like you take a deep breath and you say, what happened is horrible. Let's look at the numbers. Let's look at where we really need to improve things. And that was sort of what I was referencing in our last episode where I was saying, if you look at the problems with policing, like there are definitely too many shootings and, and I don't think police are trained well, but that's not the the common bad outcomes that really do ruin people's lives don't usually involve getting shot by cops or getting murdered by cops. And I don't see anyone, including some of the most prominent figures in the country doing that. I, it really seems like people have realized their incentives are to paint us as living in this dystopian hellscape that does not really reflect the complicated and flawed, but not dystopian reality. Right. And then there's the other angle, which is the fucking pandemic. I mean, 
like I just stayed home for three months because I was told that, you know, leaving my house to go play tennis was going to kill people, was going to kill grandma. Right. And so either we're going to have a massive spike in COVID deaths in the next couple of weeks, which clearly I don't want to happen. But if we don't have a massive COVID, COVID spike in the next couple of weeks, what does that mean about all, everything that we've been told, every time that, that, you know, Vox or whoever wrote a piece or The Atlantic published a piece saying that, you know, these uh, these anti-COVID protests or, or going to the beach or people going to lakes of the Ozarks or whatever were, you know, uh, trying to kill grandma. What does that mean? Like, were they all wrong about that, too? It's just. Yeah, it's just sort of another one of those areas where, look, I, I, I think like there's probably a safe way to protest outdoors. I think outdoor transmission is trickier, but it's just watching people sort of, it's a little bit Orwellian. We're like the stuff we said two days ago never happened. We didn't say that it was always this other way. And, and I don't want to like lose sight of the more important points, but it's just, it's weird watching that process happen. It's like, it's like everything you learn about sort of social psychology and political psychology and textbooks, just seeing it unfurl itself in real life on Twitter. It's extremely odd and discomforting. You know, I've I've made this point on Twitter a couple times that like, hey guys, you know, the pandemic is still happening. The virus doesn't care if you have a righteous cause or not. Like I, I know that rates of outdoor transmission are supposed to be lower, but if that's the case, then then the football season should be allowed to proceed. Just like make everybody wear a face mask. Um, not that I want the football pre- season to proceed. If football is canceled, I'll be totally fine with that. Sorry, Jesse. Um, but no, Tom Brady's not on the Patriots anymore. I don't like I don't like football anymore. <laughs> oh, so it's fine. Okay, good. Welcome to my team. I don't know. It, it does, just like you said, it just feels very Orwellian. You know, things that we were told were true for the last three months. Well, maybe they're not true and, and that's fine. But like, did we all just forget about it? You know? These bad things in America, it's not like you can spend 24 hours every day focusing on coronavirus or focusing on these protests or, or George Floyd. And I do find my mind thinking a lot about journalism and, and we'll get more into this in our Joe Rogan episode, but I just, this sense of, there's still good reporting and good reporters. I've, I've liked reading like the reporting from, from inside the protests and there's like some good analysis of how to improve policing, stuff like that. But a bigger and bigger percentage of it is not good and it is not really tethered to reality and is not much different in quality from like just Twitter posts. I don't I don't really understand what the role is of reporters or even sort of opinion writers if if you can get what they're offering just from Twitter anyway. I think there's a real disincentive. I mean, you know this. There's a huge disincentive to do anything but tow the party line. And the party line continues to switch, writing was fine one day, the next day it was Russians and white supremacists. So you have to like be on your toes a little bit so you can, you know, switch the narrative really quickly. But there's such an incentive, I think a very human one to be on the, on what you feel like is the right side of history, you know? And, and I think there's a, a huge problem with reporters becoming activists. Um, I think post Trump, this got way, way worse. A big problem, a big part of the problem I think is the lack of intellectual diversity, ideological diversity in the media. Basically every, you know, you're, you're put in these camps, right? If you're, a liberal or a progressive or a leftist, you work in liberal, progressive or mainstream media. And if you're on the right, you work in right wing media. And there's just very little overlap between the two. So we just live in this ecosystem where we're all getting different news based on our own preconceived notions of how the world works. And reporters are just perpetuating that over and over and over. And it's just, I just want people to like, 
stand up for the truth and not for the thing that's going to give them the most. It's likes just, it seems Twitter. like if progressive media can't be a home for someone who would say, I'm not sure the statistics support like this, this idea about like just a very basic fact where, you know, there are some statistics that are flawed, but we have statistics. It's not like we have to just like guess what the rate of police shootings is. We have numbers and in part because the Washington Post did good journalism on this, but like, man, if, if, that's sort of seen as too like right wing or, or reactionary for progressive journalism where we're so fucked and we're fucked for other bigger reasons, but, but they're connected. And I increasingly feel like I, there's like these, these longstanding decades long conservative distrust of, of mainstream media and increasingly they make points. And I'm just like, I don't really know how to argue with that. Cause I'm not sure it's wrong. I think it was, it was, when it really kicked off with like in the nineties, there was a lot of bullshit there. Cause back then there was a lot more just sort of straight news reporting and they learned how to game the raps conservatives did. But these days, like, I, man, I, it's not good. It's not good. It's not good at all. And I, I increasingly feel out of touch with the people I know because I do things like listen to the fifth column podcast and read people like, John McWhorter and and Coleman Hughes and other black intellectuals who don't sort of toe the party line um, while all of my like well-meaning progressive white friends are reading Robin D'Angelo and Ta-Nehisi Coates and getting totally different messages about the way the world works. Um, it's weird. It feels very weird to be like out of step with um, basically everybody that I know on this and, and a lot of other issues at this point. I went back and I read a, a TNC article about the Ferguson protests and his article basically pointed out that um, the, the Obama Eric Holder justice department, you know, didn't think that, that Michael Brown got shot in the back or that the, yeah. the hands up thing really happened, that there was some evidence to support uh, Darren Wilson's side. Um, I think there's still some ambiguity, but the, again, the Obama Eric Holder justice department, they basically she, ruled it, that it wasn't murder or it wasn't like, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates does the intellectually honest thing and he says, you know, yeah, that's, this seems like, it seems like that account was overhyped. And then he goes on to explain the many other ways Ferguson's police department was deeply fucked up, which is what the other independent government investigation found. And that mm -hmm. that's like, to me, um, there's less and less room for that. And and I'm sure we have some like other disagreements with, with Tanahazi, but that's an example of what it means to have some integrity to say like, look, it's sort of difficult to say this thing because this, this guy has become a symbol, but at some point when we have evidence, we can't just ignore that evidence. And you can always, you can always like making the point that the Michael Brown situation was more complicated. doesn't mean you then can't criticize Ferguson or talk about other root cause issues, People, I'm just not sure he could even he could get away with writing that article today. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, I think one of the other problems with this, this these ongoing protests right now is that they don't seem to have a clear goal. Right, the goal is sort of this. I mean, I think for a lot of people, the goal is to like in police forces entirely, which is not actually going to help low income and black communities, if they have no policing, these are also the communities that experience more than their fair share of violence. And when you talk to people who live in these communities, they typically don't say we don't want no policing. What they say is we want functional policing. We want better policing. We want to not be you know, harassed by the cops. But we also want to be able to call the cops if something is going wrong. 
And so there's a number of both white and black intellectuals, typically on the left, always on the left, who are talking about things like disbanding police forces entirely. That's not going to help black communities. That's not going to help the crime rate go down. Um, and that's not what they want. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a disconnect on both sides where I think some white liberals in particular, they think that every cop is a white, white supremacist and that every, all cops are bastards. Yeah. And then that every black person hates the police and just wants them out of their neighborhood when right. on both sides, the reality is much more complicated and requires a little bit of grappling. Like even something like defunding the police, there was a controversy of the East Bay DSA. I think they ran someone, um, a candidate to run the DSA or something who wanted to defund the the Oakland police. I looked into the numbers and like, this would involve a huge number of people of color getting fired from good jobs with, I think with pensions. So that's like the kind of trade-off when you, when you step out of fantasy right. world where on the one hand are all black people who don't want policing. On the other hand are all cops or bastards or white. Like, I mean, for one thing in, in, in situations like Ferguson, the cops were like overwhelmingly white and that was a big problem. But in most like big cities, including the NYPD, it's pretty diverse. So it's like, it's just, it's more complicated than that. Right. And there isn't evidence that white cops are more likely to kill, to shoot and kill black people than black cops are. I mean, there, you know, and maybe you could argue that once you're a cop, you know, um, you know, it's all training, or maybe you have this, this, this bias that comes out against, you know, low income people or people perceived as criminals or whatever. But that idea that there's this sort of, it's white supremacy, it's always white supremacy. It's just this one flat cause. It just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. But there's a, you know, the cost of saying that. It's also a missed political opportunity because this murder snuff film basically uh, was one of those times when I don't think I saw anybody. I heard Stefan Molyneux actually had um, conspiracy theorizing on this. I saw nobody, even far right people defending this or suggesting there was more to the story, right? No, I mean, polling shows that something like almost 80% of people polled said that the guy should have been immediately arrested. Right. And you usually can't get 80% of Americans to agree that like the sky is blue. That's like very, I mean, I still think it should be higher in this case, but, um, and there are other people respond very viscerally to these videos, to the worst of these videos, which is good because they're outrageous and we wouldn't have known about them or the cops would have lied if they didn't exist. But again, if you look at the stats, they're There's not a, representative of how it of like of everyday okay, of everyday no, events. No, I know, but also even the worst ones, even the worst shootings and the unjustified ones are are distributed across races. And if you wanted to actually right. build a movement to figure out why cops are more violent than they need to be, it would be much easier to get white people or even conservatives on board if, if you didn't I'm not saying you can't you should talk about race. Race has a role to play, but it's not the whole story. Because again, every year, hundreds of white people get killed by cops. Right. And there are legislative fixes here, right? Washington State, until recently, had a, had a law that made it almost impossible to prosecute cops for any sort of killing because you had to prove malice. And you cannot prove malice for something that isn't you know, clearly uh, premeditated. It's almost impossible to prove malice under any circumstances. So there was a ballot initiative and that law got changed. So there are these legislative fixes, but I'm not sure that mob rule is how you get to those fixes, especially because like in the case of the cop who killed Floyd, he was immediately fired. And he's now been arrested and he's probably going to go to trial. And a lot of people are saying now, well, the, you know, I think he got charged with third degree murder. They're saying, no, it should have been first degree murder. Well, the problem with that is that you have to, to, 
for a conviction, for a first degree murder conviction, you would have to prove that the crime is premeditated. That would be impossible to do because it probably wasn't. And so then the guy would would get off. So these protesters are making demands that, hey, like, I don't think people should should be charged according to, to mob rule. I just, I under any circumstances, I don't think that's how it should work. Like prosecutors need to be thorough. They need to look at the evidence. I think it's absolutely appropriate that this guy was charged, but it also sounds like the charge against him was the best possible outcome considering the legal system. And so protesters making these sort of unreasonable demands or just unlikely demands like, you know, defunding police departments entirely. It's never going to happen. Or these just sort of ambiguous um, demands like end racism. Well, what do you expect people to like? What do you expect the government to do in this? I mean, and, and that's one of my concerns here is that there's nothing that any leader can say to end this because there are no clear demands to be met. I mean, you can, you know, a, a lot of people have been talking about qualified immunity you can do that, right? You can like make these legislative fixes so that police aren't protected. But part of that is going to mean fighting police unions, incredibly difficult to do. And so, okay, you can say uh, police shouldn't be able to unionize anymore. Well, it's not just police who are going to suffer then. It's also all public sector unions if you if you kneecap the ability of unions to negotiate for these things. So it's just way more complicated. And there are fixes, but I'm not sure that these fixes are going to be um, achieved by riding in the streets. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess a couple of things. One is, um, I'll, I'll just say his name again and root mess up his name again, but Samuel Sinangwe has been good about on Twitter, like in a sea of just madness and screaming, he's actually had these tweets terms where he mentions specific policies, including ones that have passed and why he thinks they'll help. That doesn't mean I've like vetted every policy he's, he's linked to, but I'll include that in the show notes. And I think that's like a much more helpful thing to do right now than like Robin D'Angelo or, or whatever. Uh, so, okay. So like in Seattle, so in after 2012, um, Seattle Police Department got put under a consent decree, which is this like emphasizes this uh, under the, the federal consent decree, this emphasizes things like de-escalation training, less stop and frisk, making fewer stops. And since 2012, the use of force by police in Seattle has gone down by 60%. You know, so there are fixes lot. to these problems. It's huge. That's huge. This is great, right? And other people have argued that consent decree leads to, you know, spike in violence. I think that I think the data on that isn't quite conclusive because like in Chicago after a consent decree, there was a spike in homicides, but there hasn't been in these other cities. So I'm not sure the data really, really um, plays that out. Um, but there are things that can be done. But they all take legislation. They take federal oversight. They take these sort of big policy issues. And that doesn't happen when, like, people are burning cities. Sure. I think, well, I mean, I agree with you, but I think we're also, like, day four, five, whatever day. I've lost all track. We're eight years into this. (laughs) Whatever day we're on, like, it sort of just happened. So I think the goal is to channel it into something. And that's where it'd be useful to have more like high profile figures who, who leadership. Yeah. And I'm, I'm not sure. Obviously it's a big, messy country. I just, it's like, there's the narrative that we're living in a white supremacist hellscape. And then there's the narrative that things are pretty fucked up, but we have a sign of how to improve them. And I think the latter narrative, if I had to choose one is a bit, a, a bit more accurate and B is more likely to motivate people to do stuff other than just, protest and in outlier cases riot right so 
what do we do? I mean, obviously, all you and I can do is just like fucking talk about it. But no, I think clearly you and I should be the leaders of this movement. <laughs> yeah, that's what people want. They want the two white people to to be leaders of this movement, the two canceled white people. Um, but just, I think that if people were aware of the statistics, now actually, I take that back. If people were aware of the statistics, it wouldn't change anything. It's just like climate change. Like you can show people the graphs, and if they don't believe in climate change, they're not going to believe in climate change. So I don't know. I don't know. I guess what I try to do when I'm criticizing like D'Angelo is I try to get people to like think through, okay, how is this going to improve things? Reading another book about white privilege or white fragility, draw me a, a causal diagram that leads from you doing this to the world being a better place. And I think if you can get people in that mindset, maybe there's some hope because then you can point to like the specific legislative acts or court acts you mentioned. Um, I just, I just, if people would spend 10% of the time they do on, on performative bullshit on like actual action, it would help. I'm not, I'm just not hopeful. Yeah. You you know what I'm going to do when I see my white friends posting anti-racist memes on, on, uh, on Instagram and Twitter, I'm going to start, um, sending them a link to Syrah Rouse, um, to a $2,500, um, white lady re-education sessions. That would be a good use of their money, I think. And then tell them to donate to Blockman Reported. Well, speaking of which, maybe we should wrap this up here and then stay on. Um, We're going to talk a little bit longer for our patrons. We're going to talk about Antifa, which has to be said in an all caps, scary voice. And then I'm actually going to rant a little bit more about Robin D'Angelo. I just want to get not her in particular, but this whole sort of like white, liberal, bougie, anti-racism scene. I just want to lay out my critiques of that a bit more coherently than I have been on Twitter. So if you're a um, not a Patreon subscriber and you want to hear that, make sure to subscribe. Either way, uh, we appreciate that you listen to us. One more time, we're Blocked and Reported Podcast at gmail.com. Uh, also, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Katie, did you have anything else to say to the the steerage class of our listenership, the free subscribers? <laughs> Um, no, you are, your, your people are not, no longer worth my time. <laughs> Get out of here. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, rioting is good, except when it's bad, except when it's good, except when it's bad. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, we just need to disband the police force and replace them with Antifa. <laughs>